welcome to another episode of the Gross Street Journal. My name is Francis Hall and I'll be your host as we delve into the world of cannabis. Today's guest is Dr. Ethan Russo. Ethan is internationally renowned for his research on cannabis compounds and their roles in the body. As a neurologist and psychopharmacologist, by the way, try saying that after you've had a couple of pints, Ethan has established himself as a pioneer and thought leader regarding the integral role plant-based medicine should play in modern therapeutics. After concluding a decade-plus tenure as senior medical advisor for GW Pharmaceuticals in 2014, Ethan has since joined the International Cannabis and Cannabinoid Institute as head of R&D. This episode is brought to you by Urban Grow. Urban Grow want to revolutionise the cannabis cultivation process for those lucky individuals that can legally grow cannabis at home. What's special about Urban Grow? They're designing a solution that not only makes it easier to keep track of your plant's health throughout their entire grow cycle, it also optimises plant growth using data science and machine learning technologies. By collecting anonymous grow data from all of the users, the solution is able to offer tailored insights throughout the entire grow process from seed to harvest and beyond. What's more, they're designing some very exciting visual ways of documenting and sharing your grow with others. They're currently planning a crowdfunding round, so check them out at urbangrow.io, that's urbangrow.io, where you can sign up for early bird access and be the first to hear about investment opportunities with this exciting new venture. Ethan, thanks very much for agreeing to talk to me, and on a Monday morning, no less. My pleasure. Do you have a morning ritual? Uh, well, for me, uh, one weekday is like another. I tend to get up very early, uh, go straight to the gym, uh, do a workout, uh, come back, get in an hour or two of work, then have breakfast and go from there. That sounds very healthy. I, I, I wish I could have as good a morning routine as that. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about a little thing called cannabis. Just a little thing. Uh, cannabis today is a hugely discussed topic. It feels new, exciting, disruptive, controversial, and that our relationship with this plant is just starting to bloom. However, if we zoom out the lens of time far enough, we see that this plant is not something new to us. Have findings of ancient cannabis use ever informed and furthered our current knowledge base relating to cannabis? Well, I think they certainly have. This has been a big focus of my writing over the last 22 years. Um, although there's some people that would like to think that... Uh, uh, cannabis as medicine began uh, in recent times during that same interval. In fact, it's been used by man for uh, time immemorial uh, since before there was written history. Certainly, we have writings that uh, indicate knowledge of the plant uh, and its capabilities going back at least 4,000 years and possibly much longer than that. So it's not something new, but I guess um, 
the tools and technology we have today somewhat enable us to learn more about its uses. Right? Yes, that's that's really it. Um, I tend to think that uh, one of the problems in modern society is that we think that uh, man has been primitive uh, throughout his history when in fact I think people around the world were just as clever in ancient times, but as you said, uh, they just didn't have the tools to study things. So physicians in prior times had to use their powers of observation uh, and repetitive administration of a given medicinal to really ascertain its capabilities as well as its drawbacks. And given that there have been at least 4,000 years of medical observations of cannabis, uh, it is not uh, unusual to say that there have been many observations that have subsequently been borne out by uh, modern investigation. And these uh, pertain to almost any indication that you've heard about in relation to cannabis, whether it be treatment of pain, headaches, uh, spasticity, treatment of nausea, uh, effects against infectious disease, uh, even anti-aging effects. But um, it's only through careful study of these prior attestations uh, and testing them with modern techniques, such as randomized controlled trials, that we're going to be able to provide proof uh, of these claims that have been made throughout history. When did you first become aware that cannabis may have medicinal value? Well, gee, it goes way back. Um, uh, in 1970, there was a little popular book called A Child's Garden of Grass, and it was a funny book about cannabis smoking, but even there, they mentioned medical applications such as use in treating menstrual cramps and headaches. Uh, but it was only about uh, 10 years, yeah, 10 years later uh, that I encountered this personally, um, aside from, say, women I knew who did use it for cramps. Um, when I was a uh, neurology resident in Seattle in 1980, I encountered a patient who mixed cannabis into his smoking tobacco uh, as a treatment for his myasthenia gravis. That is an autoimmune disease that produces muscle weakness. As a result of this, whereas previously he had three or four intensive care unit admissions a year, he got that down to about zero to one, and he attributed it to this treatment. Um, so that was sort of fanciful. Uh, in fact, nobody's really investigated that subsequently, although we have a rational basis for thinking that it certainly could have been immunomodulatory and helpful to his condition uh, based on certain components of cannabis. Subsequently, when I was in uh, neurology practice, um, I'd say in the 90s, even then, about a third of my patients with MS were using cannabis uh, as adjuncts to their treatment. So it kind of goes back to your point about you know, people have been using this for a long time and realizing that it helps them in, in some way. And then it seems like the research kind of has to play catch up because obviously it's, it's a pretty complex and rigorous process to 
conduct all the all of these trials and all of the research needed to to bring it out to market. Well, that's true, but I would really point out that we're dealing with a good bit of scientific myopia here in that uh, most people are ignoring these signals from the past, some from brilliant physicians, both in the UK and the US, uh, the observations from the 19th century, uh, such as Sir William Gowers, um, Sir John Russell Reynolds. I mean, these were eminent physicians. Uh, Reynolds was personal physician to Queen Victoria. Um, and he wrote about cannabis over a span of 40 years in the 19th century with many important observations. Uh, so I really believe that we can use these hints from the past to inform our current research focus. In your view, just how much more potential do you think the plant has in a medicinal capacity beyond what we know today? Well, it's really pretty unlimited. Let's look at the recognized indications for cannabis. On um, These would include spasticity, muscle tightness and multiple sclerosis and other conditions, uh, treatment of nausea associated with chemotherapy, uh, similarly, uh, nausea and inanition associated with HIV AIDS. Uh, currently, we have uh, excellent evidence of the benefits of cannabidiol and other forms of cannabis in treating epilepsy. Uh, the list goes on and on. But additionally, we have some less investigated uh, possibilities with cannabis, particularly in primary treatment of cancer with high doses of cannabinoids. Uh, and also, as I alluded to earlier, uh, possibly an anti-aging and uh, treatment of dementia uh, and other degenerative neurologic diseases. Uh, these are frontiers for cannabis therapeutics that really require additional investigation and hold a great deal of promise. Then there's the whole area, uh, again, of uh, arthritis uh, with an aging population around the world, we're encountering these degenerative diseases of all types uh, to a greater degree. And the real issue is uh, not can we live longer, but can we live longer and better? Uh, and that really should be the focus. Absolutely. Quality of life is, uh, has got to be a, a key factor there. You, you mentioned anti-aging. That's something that's quite new to me. I, I've seen... Uh, some information around uh, its its potential uses with with Alzheimer's, but when you look at anti aging, are there potential other applications that that you're alluding to? Um, I mean, the first thing I think of uh, when you say anti aging is is kind of uh, the the exterior. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna look young forever. Um, is that got potential or is, is this purely kind of internal, um, making sure the, the body and mind is staying young? Well, probably a combination of both. I mean, one of the areas has to do, key organ in aging is the brain. Um, heretofore, we had conventionally thought that uh, you could not regenerate brain cells after birth, but in fact, this isn't true either. Um, the cannabinoids show promise um, in neurogenesis, and in other words, uh, formation of new cells or repair 
Um, so this certainly is possible, and to some extent, the same may be true for uh, other areas of the body. Uh, additionally, we have to include cancer as part of aging because cancer appears when genetic errors uh, enter into the system. Um, and so normal house cleaning operations to prevent the formation of tumors break down. If we can have better vigilance in the system, it may be possible to eliminate uh, these tumors as they begin. Um, and that certainly would lead to a prolongation of life and uh, certainly less wear and tear, less need for intervention with these big guns in the form of chemotherapy, which uh, introduce tremendous side effects of their own. Uh, so it uh, becomes a sort of circular argument. Obviously, any place you can intervene that's going to prevent problems is going to be a big advantage in leading a longer and more healthful life. That sounds incredibly exciting and promising. Let's just touch on, on cancer, which I think it could be a, a controversial subject because there just seems to be an incredible amount of uh, misinformation or perhaps confusion out there today. You've got people in one camp saying cannabis cures cancer. Um, you have other people saying, uh, well, it certainly helps with the pain, but there's nothing to say that it actually helps fight the cancer. And uh, then on the other side of the camp, you've got people that, of course, say it's, it's got no medicinal value. In terms of an evidence base today, what kind of claim can we comfortably make? Well, let's start at the beginning. You'd mentioned uh, symptomatic treatment in relation to cancer, and it's well established uh, that there is a role for cannabis treatment as an adjunct to, say, opioids in treatment of cancer. Um, the two seem to have additive effects, and cannabis can provide an opioid sparing effect, allowing people to lower the dose um, and in some conditions actually uh, eliminate the use of opioids entirely. So that's a big one. But additionally, improvements in sleep are uh, noted extremely commonly with cannabis treatment. Additionally, the ability of uh, cannabis to combat nausea that may actually allow people to maintain their radiation treatment or chemotherapy that otherwise was producing uh, deleterious side effects. Then the issue becomes how about, again, primary treatment of cancer using cannabinoids to fight the cancer itself. Well, first we have to understand what cancer does. Cancer comes about because cells become immortalized. Uh, they fail to follow directions that would dictate uh, a normal cell death. Programmed cell death um, is a term uh, that applies to cancer. Um, so uh, the technical term is apoptosis. In cancer, we have a failure of apoptosis, programmed cell death, and this rampant growth without control. One of the things that cannabis does is allow apoptosis to reestablish. In other words, 
these immortalized cells uh, will then uh, die uh, after exposure to this. Now, the key difference between cannabis in this context and conventional chemotherapy is that the latter are toxic to cancer cells, but also highly toxic to normal cells. So conventional chemotherapy is really uh, an effort to kill the tumor before you kill the patient. Uh, it comes down to that. In comparison, the cannabinoids are much more selective. They seem to be cytotoxic. They kill cancer cells without being toxic to normal cells. Now, obviously, because high doses are needed, if we're dealing with THC, the main uh, psychoactive ingredient of cannabis, that is going to produce side effects. But with slow titration, upward raising of dose, tolerance to those effects can be brought about uh, generally over the course of a couple of weeks. So it becomes possible for people to take very high doses, even of THC, and tolerate them. Now, we really must state something clearly here for your audience, and that is I'm not going to say that cannabis cures cancer. I think that it can be a useful treatment, but there are several caveats that must be introduced here. One is high doses are needed as I mentioned. Additionally, the treatment has to be done over a, pro a prolonged interval, probably three months. And um, if it's successful, likely has to be continued at some lower dose, probably indefinitely. A cure of cancer would represent a situation in which a person is cancer-free five years. That actually has been rarely documented uh, as, as of this time with cannabis treatment, but certainly there is the potential there. And we know of thousands of cases of people who have used this, preferably as an adjunct, something that's added on to conventional treatment, because we know that the cannabinoids enhance the effects of other treatments, such as chemotherapy and radiation treatment, so I would not want anyone to think that they can cure, uh, that word we shouldn't be using yet, uh, cure their cancer without uh, using this in conjunction with more conventional approaches. You mentioned uh, the side effects of cannabis and that um, people using it would generally take high doses to see an effect. When we talk about the the tolerance going up is is that are you referring to um, removing the the side effects that you know, may cause drowsiness whatever and not not allow them to lead a normal life in the diminishing of those side effects is that also diminishing the uh, cannabis effect as a medicine or is it purely just the side effects that will diminish as the tolerance builds Right. Excellent point. One of the unique attributes uh, of cannabis is just that, that the tolerance to the side effect develops while the benefits uh, on the medical side persist. In other words, if someone's using cannabis medicinally to treat pain, uh, the analgesic pain-killing properties will be maintained uh, in a stable condition even when the psychoactive side effects seem to fall away. 
um, to the best of our knowledge, uh, when there was a response to cannabis and cancer, uh, that too, uh, as best we've seen anecdotally, uh, will also persist. Uh, and um, even in high doses, um, after a person has become accustomed to it, they generally can function quite normally, even for cognitive tasks. That's brilliant. Nature seems to know what it's doing pretty well most of the time. And uh, we, we mentioned, I mean, we've been talking about cancer, but of course, that's that's an umbrella term. Um, and within that, there are, there are a whole host of variances. Are there any particular cancer types where we're further along or that we think uh, works better? Or is this just kind of across the board at this point? Well, there have been effects on almost every cancer cell type that's been tested, but I, I think the preeminent uh, results have been in one of the most difficult contexts, and that is brain tumors, uh, specifically the worst kind of brain tumor, glioblastoma multiforme. Um, this is, in the past, uh, led to about a six-month life expectancy with advanced treatment that's up over a year. Um, but heretofore, there's been no conventional chemotherapy or radiation treatment that would lead to a cure. Um, recently, uh, this has not uh, been published yet because uh, the results are still coming in, but uh, GW Pharmaceuticals has used Sativex uh, in conjunction with a chemotherapy agent called temozolomide and showed a prolonged um, uh, survival time in this glioblastoma multiforme. Um, about 83% of people uh, who got Sativex with temozolomide survived a year versus only 53% with temozolomide with placebo. Um, and uh, so that uh, is a significant difference. Um, and uh, similarly, from other quarters, we have uh, evidence of uh, pronounced uh, responses to cannabis treatment and brain tumors that were otherwise considered untreatable. Uh, so this is a very promising area. Mm, that, that sounds incredible. And actually, I, I spoke with Constance Finley in the last episode, and she also touched on the positive results that she saw in a, in a, verif a verified outcome study uh, treating patients with uh, with severe brain tumours. Um, so yes, I, I agree. That looks like a very promising area. And you, you touched on Sativex, and uh, of course you've, you've had a long tenure with GW Pharmaceuticals. For anyone that, that doesn't know, uh, what is Sativex? Sativex is a cannabis-based medicine. It's formed from two extracts of cannabis, one that is high in tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, the other high in cannabidiol, uh, CBD. Uh, these are combined uh, to form an oromucosal spray, a spray in the mouth uh, that's more commonly been used to treat spasticity with multiple sclerosis. But the same material, up to 12 sprays a day, uh, was used in this trial uh, of uh, brain cancer treatment. Um, and so the dose in this instance was not very high, um, not as high as many people are, are using otherwise. 
uh, to treat cancer. So the fact that there was any signal in conjunction with temozolomide was really exciting news. Um, for people in the UK, um, this may or may not be available depending on where you live, because my understanding is there's a bit of a postal code lottery um, in terms of National Health Service um, coverage for this treatment. And um, it remains a question in my mind whether such off-label use would be available even through the NHS, uh, because this is not yet an approved indication for that agent. Yeah, so, I mean, let's touch on that, because, of course, in the UK, cannabis remains a uh, illegal controlled substance with no recognised medicinal value. C- correct me if I'm wrong, G- GW Pharmaceuticals, they're based in the UK, are they not? Yes, certainly. So, I mean, from your experience uh, working there, how closely were was the government... Um, working with you or um, trying to understand the work that you were doing? And do you think that th- this could be our, our best chance of making some change in this country is for um, GW Pharmaceuticals, who are investing a lot uh, in, in the research and the clinical trials and developing these products and bringing them to market? Um, do you think this kind of activity is, is going to get the government to take notice? Well, I hope so. First, kudos to the Home Office for approving this uh, research back in 1998, allowing it to go forward. Uh, certainly, uh, at the time, they were at the vanguard in the, of this, um, and in stark contrast to the U.S., where we remain mired in the dark ages of cannabis therapeutics. So obviously, there's a great deal of experimentation going on uh, by physicians and patients across the country, uh, but certainly with no uh, encouragement from the government. Uh, so I must say that. Um, to me, however, uh, as an outsider, as a Yank, I've, I've got to point out that uh, considering the home office cooperation, with uh, research and development of Sativex, uh, something really broke down when it came to implementation uh, because uh, this medicine uh, developed in the UK still isn't uh, widely available uh, to its citizens, and uh, that hardly makes any sense. Um, Now, the the follow-on question to that is, Let's say that Sativex were more available and is approved in other indications, as I expect. What is that going to do to overall cannabis policy? Well, that's certainly up to the government to decide because they can either liberalize their uh, rules overall or they may fail to do that. Um, Certainly in the U.S., we're expecting another GW product called Epidiolex a cannabidiol-based medicine to treat epilepsy, we expect that to be uh, approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration later in 2018. However, when that occurs, it will need to be rescheduled, but will have no force or effect on other scheduling of cannabis. In other words, other preparations will remain totally illegal under federal law. Uh, So, 
sometimes uh, science and government fail to come to a meeting of the minds, and uh, it remains to be seen what will happen in this regard. And so from what you've seen of, of other legalized regions, um, like we've just been talking about, do you think there's a right or a wrong way to roll out cannabis legalization? Um, are there regions that you think have found the right balance yet? Uh, well, there are always problems. I'm highly critical uh, because I, I'd have to say in general that often these new rules are made up uh, without suitable uh, reference to uh, scientific input. Um, so I, I can tell you that although I've been doing this for 22 years, I'm really asked by governments how things should be done. Um, uh, there's that. Um, how it should be done. Well, first of all, I, I think that um, my personal opinion would be that um, – uh, this has to be totally decriminalized. Um, I do believe that there should be standards in the industry uh, so that it allows the consumer to be aware of the composition and safety of the medicine they're receiving. Also, it's consistency. Now, there are many people, particularly physicians, that would think that this can only occur in the context of a government-approved registered pharmaceutical. Um, I would uh, say that other uh, approaches are possible, but again, uh, should be subject to some form of regulation and oversight so that safety is paramount. I, I agree with you on that. And I've seen you know, a, lot of, a lot of news stories, some of them quite hilarious and some of them actually quite serious in terms of um, – areas where cannabis is now legal you've got real big problems actually uh, with the, the the governance and the transparency of actually what you are buying um i think you know, a few a few stories that come to mind are in terms of the, the edible market and buying for instance gummy bears and not really knowing whether you're going to um be completely um out of your mind eating one or whether you're going to get that same effect eating 10. So do, do you think that the medicinal and the leisure industries need to be aligned to prevent the poor product governance? Uh, well, it'd be a worthy endeavor. I, I don't know how practical it'll be. Um, there's a lot of money to be made or people think that they can make a lot of money in this industry. Uh, personally, I'm against um, uh, some of these confections, particularly those that would be attractive to children, um, obviously these they really incite law enforcement uh, against the whole process and may blind people uh, to the therapeutic possibilities. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. So we just touched on edibles. There are many different ways in which one can consume cannabis. You, know, you can eat it, you can smoke it. You could vape it, could be uh, intravenously inserted. Do each of these have uh, medicinal values? Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any role for intravenous uh, except possibly uh, in the future in treating uh, an emergency such as status epilepticus where someone has ongoing seizures um, that can't be otherwise stopped. Um 
it remains the case that inhalation is most popular. I've never been a proponent of smoking for medicine. There are many drawbacks, including the higher risk of intoxication and reinforcement. Also, the, the sharp uh, contour of onset and offset means that repetitive dosing is more necessary. Usually in cannabis therapeutics, we're talking about uh, chronic conditions. And in that situation, best is usually going to be an oral preparation that might be only uh, taken necessarily two or three times a day or uh, some of these tinctures and oral mucosal uh, applications would uh, fill the bill as well. Uh, most often, those are going to be the best types of preparations. Obviously, for dermatological conditions, um, skin is very easily treated uh, with cannabis-based preparations if they're in the right vehicle. Um, but people should be aware that we have no good evidence that you can treat an internal condition uh, by uh, applying cannabis preparations just to the skin. Okay. And what are your thoughts on cannabis as a gateway drug? And I'll leave you free to interpret that how you will. Right. Well, it's not. Um, the idea here, on um, this was uh, begun in the 60s, that when people were exposed to cannabis, they would be on a slippery slope to heroin or cocaine or other drugs. The only way that this been, has been demonstrated uh, is that uh, because of the illegality of cannabis, it certainly is the case that people uh, who purchase it uh, on the street from a dealer might be exposed uh, to these other, the availability of these other agents. However, there is no evidence scientifically, it's been thoroughly debunked, that someone that starts on cannabis uh, will necessarily try these other drugs. Uh, in relation to that, you can show statistical associations with cigarette smoking and use of alcohol um, to trying other things, but not with cannabis. Let me go on from there, if I may. Um, specifically, it has now been demonstrated in a variety of contexts in clinical trials, in surveys, in epidemiological studies of some depth, that when people use cannabis medicinally, they're able to lower their dose of opioids and other addictive drugs and often to discontinue them entirely. Um, and this has been reflected in a serious study uh, it was done by Bachhuber et al. a couple of years ago in which they showed a decreased overdose mortality with opioids in states where cannabis was available. Um, so this is actually not a gateway drug. It is a uh, treatment that can uh, help prevent addiction to other substances. Wow. So, I mean, it's almost the complete opposite of what was positioned as a gateway drug. And from what you've said, it sounds like the only feasible way that you could link cannabis with being a gateway drug is purely down to the fact that it's illegal. And so um, you know, people have access to other, other substances um, by having to go 
onto the street to, uh, to yeah, acquire that, That's it. So, you know, that association is purely a byproduct of prohibition. Uh, and with legal availability and regulation, it uh, shouldn't be an issue at all. Something that's going on in the States now and has become of some concern to the liquor industry is that where cannabis has been available, um, the rates of drinking of alcohol, even beer, have gone down. Um, and uh, maybe this was a trend that was going to occur anyway, but uh, it seems to have been accentuated uh, by greater availability of cannabis in, in some jurisdictions, specific states. How would you describe the endocannabinoid system uh, if you were to explain it to a child? I'm just asking for a friend. Okay, sure. Well, uh, the endocannabinoid system, so-called, was discovered because of cannabis research. So cannabis has chemicals in it. We wanted to find out how they worked. In the course of that, uh, we found three things. We found that cells in the body have cannabinoid receptors where THC binds. So that was the first discovery in about 1988. A couple of years later, they found natural chemicals in the body that also lodged on these cannabis receptors. These then were called endogenous cannabinoids, endocannabinoids, cannabinoids within. Uh, and then the third uh, part was uh, figuring out how they're made and broken down. So the endocannabinoid system, as it turns out, helps regulate various, almost all functions in our body, what we call our physiology. It is designed to keep things in balance. So if there's too much activity, too much going on in the system, it will lower the activity down in the normal range. On the other hand, if there's an underactivity, not enough activity in a system, it will bring the activity back up into the normal range. And this applies to neurotransmitters, chemical messengers in the brain, as well as to digestion, uh, our bone structure, uh, almost any function in the body that you can name is modulated, uh, is affected by this endocannabinoid system. So I hope that the child I'm talking to is a little more sophisticated. You didn't say what age uh, she or he should be. <laughs> Um, well, but I, I think, I think yeah. that was a good explanation. I think, yeah, I, I understood it. So, um, uh, my friend, I mean, understood it. So it, it seems that cannabis has a special relationship with the, with this system. And I've, I've never heard of, um, something that, I mean, it's a, it's a regulator, I guess, that can, that can go up or down and it responds to this, the specific need. Are there any other plants that share this trait? Uh, to some extent. I mean, there's been this uh, misconception out there that cannabis is the only uh, plant that has uh, effects on the endocannabinoid system. But a couple of years ago, I wrote an article about a variety of other plants uh, that can affect it uh, through one way or another, either directly or indirectly. And this includes uh, some common foods 
Um, there's green tea in there, uh, echinacea that's uh, used to help uh, treat colds. Uh, there are three components in black pepper that affect the endocannabinoid system. Uh, so, uh, certain, and then there's the whole area of uh, prebiotics and probiotics. Our gut um, really helps regulate endocannabinoid tone. Um, and uh, interestingly, administration of cannabis affects the gut bacteria as well. Uh, so we've got this impressive dance uh, of factors uh, based on nutrition uh, and gut health um, that affect uh, the endocannabinoid system as well. And, and what is it that these um, these plants are actually doing? So you mentioned that the THC binds itself to the endocannabinoid system. What, what does that mean? Is it just allowing it to uh, do what it needs to do more effectively or more efficiently? Right, it may. So let's say that... Um, uh, you know, there, we have not found THC in any other plant. Um, however, there is a liverwort in New Zealand uh, that seems to mildly stimulate uh, the same CB1 receptor. So it may be psychoactive. And on the internet, there's some stories of uh, people smoking this stuff, although um, uh, it seemingly is a relatively endangered species and it's hard to grow. So I, I don't, I'm not going to mention its name. Uh, however, that would be one example. Then there are a lot of indirect effects um, that can uh, slow the breakdown of uh, natural endogenous chemicals. Um, and um, there's a related system called the TRIP-V1 receptor where capsaicin, the active ingredient in chili pepper, works. There's also an agent in black pepper and one, in ginger, or, one or more in ginger uh, that affect the same receptor. And uh, these can affect pain uh, and possibly emotion. Um, so it's, it's really an intricate uh, dance uh, between our nutrition and how these chemicals would be incorporated in the body and affect our overall health. Mm, and the the items that you've compared with cannabis there, you know, in terms of ginger, pepper, green tea, they're, they're all things that are really touted as, uh, for want of a, a better word, you know, superfoods, things that are very, very good for you. So, I mean, it's it's interesting to see cannabis up there with with these other um, with these other items. Yes. So you, you've obviously been involved in, in cannabis research for, for decades. Um, is it getting easier to conduct research uh, than it has been in the past? Well, I'm afraid it depends on where you live. Um, there's a good reason that although I've resided in uh, the U.S. all this time, that I have spent most of the last 22 years working for foreign companies, and it is precisely because... Uh, I've been unable to pursue the kind of research into cannabis therapeutics uh, that's necessary uh, in my home country. Uh, so it, at the moment, is really no easier uh, in the USA. It is much easier other places, particularly Canada, uh, various areas in Europe, uh, especially Israel, um, and um, uh, Certainly, uh, they're getting things off the ground in, in Australia as well. Um, 
And there's great interest in uh, other areas. Um, South Africa is coming on board. Uh, there's an active program supported by the government in Colombia uh, to engage in advanced uh, cannabis research uh, on every level, whether it's growing uh, or uh, clinical trials. Uh, same is going on now in Chile. Um, so um, it's a very encouraging atmosphere depending on where you live and less so in, in other places. It seems very positive indeed that all of these countries are certainly making the right the right movements. It it does feel like uh, it, it's certainly picking up a lot of momentum, and uh, I'm really excited to see where it leads. So you've recently joined the International Cannabis and Cannabinoid Institute, the ICCI, which is the first centre of excellence for the advancement of cannabis and cannabinoid treatments. It's located in, in the Czech Republic, which I imagine is <laughs> for some of the reasons that you've just alluded to. Um, what, what's your uh, role within the ICCI? Is it a, a platform to further your already impressive amount of research? Well, uh, I'm the director of research and development. Uh, so what we're trying to do at this uh, time is twofold. Uh, number one is aid institutions and companies uh, that wish to pursue cannabis research. Um, just the logistics and nuts and bolts of the approaches. Um, our uh, various people there have expertise in uh, both basic science, clinical trials, uh, also um, uh, international relations, uh, the law. Um, to facilitate this kind of endeavor. Uh, additionally, we uh, hope to pursue a lot of research projects of our own, uh, particularly identifying the kind of work that we think needs to be done to advance the field and bring it into the mainstream of therapeutics. Fantastic. That sounds excellent, and I wish you all the best with it. Ethan, it has been fascinating and insightful. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. <laughs>